1: and Merch button. Click on that, it'll take you right to the store, and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today.
2: When great events in history occur, do witnesses realize the importance Looking back on my time now, I realize I was one of the lucky ones, privileged to tell the stories of those times. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer.
3: Confessions of a Female Crank, Chapter 3, Portrait of the Writer as a Young Thing. I fell in love when I was seven. This is not some schoolyard shenanigans where the Johnny boy struck enough to sneak smooching my cheek when teachers weren't looking. Nothing so shallow. Instead, I fell for the sporting world. Baseball, and most especially and devotedly, that band of baseball buccaneers known as the Pittsburgh Pirates. My fascination for these men, uniformed in carbon gray, playing on their sea of green field, extended to obsession. I expended hundreds of pages of paper trying to draw their fanciful letter P monogram just so. I begged father to let me play hooky from school and take me to Allegheny City, to Exhibition Park. Uncle Will had given me a pirate blue and gray dress, a gift he would soon regret, as I wore it on any day I knew the pirates were playing in Allegheny, and unleashed my urgent pleas. Father submitted to my wheeling, perhaps more frequently than he should have, and who knows how many stories were subsequently scooped on the Guardian. But Ot3 was a tremendous summer to fall in love. And these pirates were perfect material for a flight of fancy. There was Deacon Philip and Sam Lever. The melodious, assonant, long E sounds as lovely as their delivery. Ginger Beaumont, the baby-faced, fleet-footed, lead-off hitting center fielder, who played with pep enough to live up to his name. Fred Clark, eagle-eyed manager and left fielder, a leader of men who had been with this club since they were in Louisville in the 90s. And of course, He who defies the adjectives we use to describe ordinary mortals. He who was German like my mother, but was called a Dutchman like my father. Appropriately set there in the centerpiece of the diamond, the shovel-handed shortstop of legend. Oh, hello. Sorry I didn't see you there. You're probably looking for Orville Mulligan, sports writer. But it's well too early yet. You'll have about as much success sighting a passenger pigeon as you will Orville most mornings before ten. And he's already done that once this month already. And it's still another eight minutes exactly before Herman arrives at precisely nine, followed by the ever-fashionably late Myrtle. Come back in a bit, and maybe by then something will be happening here. Why don't you catch up with Father instead? He and Jay are over at Fasselbacks. And tell him to get enough milk brocken for us all.
4: Ah, good Morgen, Frank! Hello, Master Johnson. How many milks in today, Liebling?
5: Good, Morgan. Six for us today, Gretchen.
4: Big, big spender today.
5: Johnson, you've heard of Napoleon, haven't you? Uh, yes sir, Mr. Delft. An army travels on its stomach. Well, he said that. You know, he was right. My army is the Guardian, and nothing will fill those stomachs like Frau Gretchen's milk rolls.
4: Except for Frau Gretchen's fresh bratwurst. Tell me, Liebling, are you coming for Saturday dinner? Albert and Johan are coming.
5: Maybe, Gretchen. Newspaper does keep Marla and me busy.
4: Ach, always with the busy. Always with no time. I know, on Sunday you make no newspaper. So on Saturday night, you are free.
5: Well, maybe I will, my little daffodil.
4: You are of good mood today, Frank. I'm great. Ach, but always you say that.
5: Do I? Never. Uh, boss? You do, actually. Do what? Say great a lot. Really? All the time, sir. Hmm. Well, I have reason to feel splendid today.
4: Here you are, Libling. Five cents.
5: Five cents? Have your prices gone up?
4: That joke never becomes funnier, Frank.
5: Don't Gretchen. Johnson, may I have found the inventor of the cure for baldness.
4: That is good news, truly. For so long you are the shortest Dutchman I know, now you become one of the boldest also.
5: Vielen Dank, Gretchen. Oh, Mr. Duff? Sir, this roll is very tasty. Great, great! But never mind the pastry, Johnson. Take a good look here. Am I balding? Uh, sir,
6: I'm sure I can't judge.
5: Just give it to me straight. Have the termites not away the the beams? Have the lumberjacks cleaned out the forest? Is the fat lady singing for my follicles?
7: Uh... Well? Sir, I,
6: uh...
5: I... What is it, man? Spit it out!
6: Well, I don't know if the lumberjacks or the termites are going to bring the opera house down first, but, uh... You are balding, Mr. Deft,
5: sir. (laughs) Wow! These milk buns are delicious! Don't talk with your mouth full, Johnson. I suppose I'll have to teach you manners along with a trade. Baldest Dutchman she's ever seen. Ha! I'll show her the baldest Dutchman she's ever seen. Or rather, no, I won't do that. Come on, Johnson. I got hair to grow.
3: Alright, team. I'm calling this editorial meeting to order. Our stated goal today is to prepare the checklist of items in order to release the next three editions of The Guardian out in a timely and organized manner.
0: Organized? That is indeed incredibly amusing. (laughs) Last week, a sporting writer was given the task of interviewing the President of the United States, while the senior news writer was assigned to cover C.M. Schwab. Sheesh. Newsman holds world record crutch. Herm, what did you want
2: Frank to do? I was already in Washington.
3: He knew about this possibility for weeks. Even years, you said... Also, we had you on the Tom Gang war story. Which I
0: covered excellently, I would interject. Not to mention
3: a front-page item on the same day as the Coolidge interview. Oh, sure. Four column inches. Nothing happened, Herman. There was a truce. Les carottes sont cuites, Monsieur Schneider.
2: Yes, Herm. The carrots are cooked.
0: <laughs> Good. Good. It is clear to me. Already this meeting takes too much time. So I will be going now, now to do stories on the Ambridge money train, on the political campaign spending in Pennsylvania, and on the heroic stenographer who assisted police in the capture of a fugitive. All will be up to my usual golden standard, and will include not one word about baseball. Good day, comrades.
3: Guardian grudge continues. He's never going to forget this.
2: Sure he will. In about six months.
3: Luckily, we know he's dependable regardless of mood. All right, Myrtle, what kind of goodies have you got for us? Well, I'll have the reaction
8: from social circles when the verdict comes in for the Willow murder trial. On Saturday is the Uncle Bill Brown birthday party at the Duquesne Club. Those masons throw quite the party. You just have to hope they'll let me write up the juicy stuff. The Zigfield cast opens Annie Dear Sunday evening, so I'm sure next week will be full of fets for star and starlet. And finally, La Piece de Resistance. Rumor has it that the former First Lady, Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt, might soon be doing the Pittsburgh social rounds. So I'll be getting to the bottom of that particular gossip soon
3: as well.
2: Whatever you do, just make sure Herm gets some of that story.
3: Pas de tout. It's my scoop. It is, Myrtle. Excellent docket, as always. Merci.
2: All right, Marla, what do you have for me?
3: A train ticket to New York City for the West Point Notre Dame game. Nice. Pittsburgh peach
8: to Big Apple on plum job.
2: Pittsburgh peach?
8: Well, no offense. I was just one fruit short of a salad.
2: Sports may not be Myrtle's raison d'être. But she was dead correct about this plum of an assignment, featuring two of the college game's top teams at the polo grounds, no less. The visitors are the West Point Cadets, in peacetime finally beginning to return to nearing the glory of their undefeated campaign of 1914. Harry Ellinger, Edgar Garvish, and August Farwick comprise an interior trio among the finest in the game, while halfback Harry Wilson is well poised to take advantage of the brute force this line employs. However, the cadet linemen have yet to face an opposition like that of the home team Notre Dame Fighting Irish, pride of Catholic and Indianian football fans alike. Led by already legendary head coach Newt Rockne, the Irish have amassed 50 wins and three ties against just four losses since 1918. Though claims to the number one standing in the land by the Notre Dame faithful have historically been spurious at best, each season recently has brought new hope that this will be the year. In 1924, the distillation of that hope lies in a backfield set to become faces for men: Harry Stoudemire, Don Miller, Jim Crowley, and Elmer Layden, fearsome foursome of. Now that's not it. Stoudemire, Miller, Crowley, and Layden, the power behind the. Stoudemire, Miller, Crowley, and Layden, surely no team in hey, land will play
6: them. How's the sonnet?
2: Max Mackey. It's going well enough. And don't worry, I'll draw some pictures to go with the text so you can understand. Yuck, yuck.
6: Hilarious, college boy. Have a seat. Cigarette? Sure. Why not? I can't get a hand to save my life in Duke's game, anyway. Who else is around? Naturally. Sammy is following the Irish show. Nobody else on this train, near as I can tell. Duke's has this other guy with him. Figs. He isn't one of ours. I can't place the guy. Maybe he and Dukes are running a sting on us. Sure,
2: they'll haul in a good two dollars maybe. Three. What, you can't afford to lose three bucks? Lend me two more. I don't know.
6: What, you can't afford to lose two bucks? So you're admitting you'll lose. Lend me two dollars or I'll start singing Tessie. Tessie would be bad enough, but to hear your
9: variation, I'd rather lose the two dollars. That's the spirit. Well, boys, look what the cat hath drug in. Young Mr. Orville Mulligan. Good evening, Mr. Dukes. Oh, Dukes, Dukes, call me Dukes. Sammy?
6: Hello, Orville? Orville, can you let me... Can't
2: do it, Sammy. Max already mooched it from me.
6: Damn. That's right. I've got a patron now.
9: Give me some room there. And this is Mike Figurski. Call him Figs. Figs, Orville Mulligan. Pittsburgh Guardian. The Guardian, eh? Never heard of that one. Oh, now you sure you want to lose your friend's money, Maxie? What the hell, huh? I got nothing better to do until New York.
6: As the man said, the game may be crooked, but it's the only game in town.
7: This mug's got guts. I'll give him that.
6: Write you off, Biggs. Let me some guts, Orby. Uh, no. Dukes.
9: Well, let's talk terms of interest. Ah, come on!
7: Five-stud is the game. Nothing wild except the dealer. And a two for the bean-eater! Already? Fix?
2: Stooldrayer, Miller, Crowley, and Lady. Iron Man. No, Men of Steel. Ah, Notre Dame's in Indiana, not Pennsylvania, you idiot. The Pittsburgher Night Express takes passengers through the countryside of central Pennsylvania, nearly the only evidence of civilization in sight. This area may also boast of perhaps the smoothest rails in all of America, thanks to the participation of so many steel manufacturing executives on the Pennsylvania Railroad Board of Directors, or so say Herman Earl, and Pullman coaches throughout. Traveling riders tend to consider all routes alike as merely a method of getting from point A to point B, but I'll admit,
9: this one is a favorite.
2: Zuldraer, Miller, Crowley, and Lee.
9: Well, so much for those two. Care to wet your whistle? You include a glass, and you've got a deal. Would I let you die? Cheers.
0: <laughs>
9: Say, next time, catch the batch of bathtub gin to see if the guy's still bathing. This is as smooth as the backside of the dolls I met in Boston last month. I blame your uncultured palate. Uncultured palate? The only way palate
2: and that fire water belong in the same sentence is if you're talking about removing paint. Still, it does pack a nice punch. Another? Thank
9: you, sir. <laughs> yep, that'll put lead in your pencil.
2: I blamed Duke's booze for the dreams I had, though all I remembered upon waking were vague sensations, phantasms of ghosts. The train was a blood red streak trying to slash open the horizon, horses burning the planes behind them, a single note of horn, pounding hooves. Eureka! Ballad of the Four Horsemen. From Boston Town to Chicago, they best their worthy foes. With pounding beat of equine gait, steady as she goes, trouncing on opponents, leaving total devastation. Our Notre Dame's backs, the four horsemen of revelation: Miller, Stoudray, Crowley, and Lape, pride of the Irish, scourge of a nation. From Nebraska to New York State, they win against the best. With grace and skill and smarts to burn, these Irish pass the test.
6: Dateline, Middleburg, Pennsylvania. The same verdict given to Ralph Shadle, a farm boy who killed Harvey Willow, was returned by a jury late today in the trial of Miss Anna Willow as an accessory to the crime. She was convicted of second-degree murder, which calls for, from 10 to 20 years in the penitentiary, after the jury was deliberated six hours. Counsel filed a motion for a new trial. When the verdict was rendered and Judge Miles I, Potter of the Snyder County Court, reserved decision and
7: sentence until Monday. Then, Marla. You're beautiful when you type.
3: Alright. Next let's do something that's not true crime. How about the one from Atlanta about the lunatic Confederate vet?
7: Sure thing, Miss Delft. Uh let me get that out.
3: Thank you, Jay. Good morning, Jack. What brings Pittsburgh's most obscure would-be Playboy layabout to our offices this morning? Polo match get called off?
7: I don't play polo. Horses don't care for me. So why are you here? Isn't coming to gaze upon your paltritude enough excuse?
3: Honestly, Jack, paltritude is an awful word. It's the most contranimous-sounding word that is an actual contronym.
7: Contranimous?
3: Are you ready, Jay?
7: Yes, ma'am. Got it here. Dateline, Atlanta.
3: Go ahead, Jay.
7: W.A. Ellis, aged Confederate veteran,
6: was released from Fulton Tower today, where he had been imprisoned on lunacy charges preferred by
3: officials- So, Jack, the is there a point to your vulture impression?
7: No, uh, I mean, yes. My father, Jack Sr., sent me to check the page proofs on our, uh, full-page ad.
3: I know who your father is, Jack, and we do appreciate the sponsorship. But the proofs arrived Tuesday, and you checked them on Wednesday. And on Thursday, even though not one letter had changed.
7: Just trying to be thorough. It's the small details that make a big company successful, you know. Besides, these are the proofs for the Saturday
3: ad. You brought those in yesterday. Have I mentioned that I'll be running the
7: company someday?
3: Really? Well now, that's interesting. (laughs) Or it would be if you didn't mention it every time you're loitering in this office.
7: Well, how about this for interesting? I've brought payment for a month's worth more of ads.
3: Better. Thank you, Jay. For now, can you go ahead and collect some obits, both local and national?
7: Sure thing, Miss Delft. Alright, final shot. I've got tickets to Annie here on Saturday night. Third row, center, best seats in the house for their last show in Pittsburgh. It'll really be the bee's knees. It's a Zigfield, you
3: know. Yes, we've heard. Let me get Mr. Delft for you.
7: Wait, but what about the show?
3: Look, Jack, your attention is flattering and all, but I can list several reasons why this matter isn't worth discussing. One, I'm working, and my concentration would be better employed otherwise. Two, you're sixteen, Jack, and I'm not sixteen. Three, I don't even like it.
8: Father!
2: Here's a travel tip from a roving writer. Most hotels will stash your luggage for you. They'll even let you use the bath on an unrented room if you slip someone enough gratuity. This way, you save your travel allowance minus maybe 25 cents in exchange for three hours of sleep, which you'd have to pay a full day's stay for, and that you're better off skipping altogether, anyway. In this case, why bother? If, when in Rome, one does as the Romans do, the course of action in the city that never sleeps seems obvious. In 1924, the Bank of Manhattan and Chrysler buildings are six years from completion. The Empire State Building, seven. There is no shortage of gleaming towers to capture both the literal and the mind's eye. The moon alights in hundreds of reflections surrounding you in any vantage point. And when dawn comes, all is alight with color.
6: Jesus, Dukes. Something needs to be done about the hooch you forced it on us. You gotta learn when to say uncle, boys. We were expecting drinks, Dukes, not a Turkish wrestling tournament in the gut.
2: Dukes is right. You two middleweights should have quit earlier. Middleweights? Fine. You two lightweights should have quit sometime before you passed out.
6: Thank you for your heartfelt concern, Susan B. Anthony. I'll be able to do the job. It'll just hurt a bit.
9: (gasps) Well, if it isn't God's gift to sports, dudes, boys, merry noon. Merry noon? It pains me to admit how gorgeous that car of yours is, Freddy. Isn't she just swell? That's a whole new shade of red, formulated
10: just for this one.
6: Sammy, how can you afford a machine like that?
10: Bosses at Ultimate know how to take care of their workers. (laughs) You call what you do work? In any event, Ultimate Radio can afford fine automobiles like this one for all its top salesmen. After all... Advertisers are smart enough to realize the power and reach of radio. Some of you guys, especially Orville there, should wisen up and seek employment on the airwaves. Not that any of you could compete with me.
2: It's an attractive prospect, Freddy, but I'm concerned about the effects of radio waves on my health.
10: (laughs) That sort of thinking went out in the 19th century. Numerous scientists have proven that radio waves have no effect whatsoever on human tissue.
2: It seems that you're a scientific curiosity of sorts, then. How's that? Clearly the radio waves have given you elephantitis of the ego.
10: (laughs) As long as it comes with elephantitis of the wallet, I'm fine with that. Speaking of which, do any of you want to help carry some equipment up to the press box? I'll pay you each a shiny quarter. How about you, Orvie? Twenty-five cents is probably a week's pay for you.
2: Say, what gives with the aggression, Freddy?
9: Merely jesting, old chum. See you down the road, fellas. Oh, hold on, Freddy. I, I've got some uh, a business to take care of not far from here. Do you think you could give me a quick spin over there? Why, certainly, Dukes. All right, let's blow. Enjoy the game, boys.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs>
7: Let me help you up, sir. (coughs) Incidentally, I was wondering if I might get your permission to court your daughter.
3: cut that out. Look, his hair is smoldering.
5: Ow, ow, what are you doing, Johnson? Trying to, uh, (coughs) put out the forest fire?
3: (coughs) Jay, open some windows in the office. (coughs) We need some air going through here. Father, what in God's name is going on here?
5: (coughs) This did not go to plan.
3: Clearly. But what is this?
5: It's the future. Or so I thought.
3: Oh, no.
5: By brand, it's Dr. Zinn's follicinous hair growth device. With carefully constructed chemical balance and the innate powers of electricity, the scalp may be induced to generate more hair. Or so I was told. Oh, well, at least it didn't cost anything.
3: Oh, no. No. That's
5: right. I got a barter ad deal. No loss.
3: Unless you count the expense of a new shirt and new windows for your office, plus the fact that we'll probably have to hire some monks to burn incense in here for a month to cover the burnt hair smell. Not to mention that you actually have less hair now than you did before. I'd call that a fairly significant net loss.
7: Yes, you're right, Marla. Not great. Don't worry, Mr. Delft. I've brought the money for another month of advertising. Great, great! This should cover the windows. I think. How much do windows cost these days? Such a man of the people.
5: Says the street urchin. Now, boys. Alright, I'm going upstairs to change and find my hat. Johnson, get to work cleaning this up. Right away, sir. And try to save some of the tonic. I may try to fix that contraption. No, you may not,
7: father! What is that? It smells like fertilizer mixed with
3: kerosene. Yeah. Dear. Yes, my Marla. Would you say you'd be willing to do anything for me? Yes, anything. Excellent. Then help Jay clean this mess up. But I. this suit. You did say anything. I did. Aw, look at that. The prince and the pauper. Sam Clemens would be proud. <laughs>
6: by
10: play description of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish versus the West Point Cadets by me, Freddie Carson, direct from Polo Grounds via the URP radio network via WNEW right here in good old Gotham Town. We're a good 30 minutes away from the start of play here at the Grounds, but the pageantry has already begun. More than five dozen players have suited up for the Irish today, and all 60 strong are running drills as though participating in one of the opposition's boot camps. This is quite the sight to witness, ladies and gentlemen, as multiple punters and kickers are booming balls back and forth near each sideline at the Irish end, whilst in the center of the field the offense platoons are throwing passes and conducting blocking drills. An impressive display of regimentation being displayed by Coach Newt Rockney's squadron. Here come the 1,400 cadets to back their teams here today. All are outfitted in their dress grays, in military formation to their seats. Though so it should be pointed out that this particular crowd will have scarce little use for such comforts in a thriller such as this promises to be.
6: Thanks, isn't he here to cover the game? The way he dressed, I couldn't tell whether he was a third-rate numbers runner or just a wrong number.
2: Oh no! 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 No!
6: What's up with him? Hey, Orville, what gives?
2: I think I cannot find my notebook. Damn!
6: Well, we got plenty of paper here.
2: I know, I know. It's just that I had all this great material ready to go. Maybe
6: half. Well, you win some. Shh. Listen.
10: Ballad of the Four Horsemen. From Boston Town to Chicago, they best their worthy foes. With pounding beat of equine gait as steady as she goes. Trouncing on opponents, leaving total devastation. Are Notre Dame's backs, the Four Horsemen of Revelation. That
2: son of a... Miller,
10: Skulldraer, Crowley and Layden. Pride of the Irish, scourge of a nation. From Nebraska to New York State, they win against the best. With grace and skill and smarts the bird. Hey, what are you doing here? You stole my words, you crooked. Uh,
6: what is he doing?
10: We interrupt this broadcast for, uh, two minutes of silence, courtesy to URP to, uh, uh, uh quickly, uh, clean the transmitters. What do you think you're doing here again, Mulligan? I'm live here.
2: You're not going to be live for much longer unless you tell me why. Why'd you do it? Do what? Steal my notebook.
10: I didn't steal any... Oh, that was yours. The poetry isn't half bad, Orvi.
2: Not half bad? Considering you stole it.
10: I didn't steal it. I bought it for a buck and a half.
2: For a buck and a half?
10: What's going on in here, Orville? This
2: charlatan stole my notebook and then read my work on the air just now.
6: Plagiarizing? You lowlife scumbag!
10: I didn't steal it. I bought it from some guy. Said he found it. And you can't plagiarize something that hasn't been printed. I'm gonna kill him. Orville, relax. He isn't worth the trouble. You want your poem back? Here, take it. Just get the hell out of here.
2: Where's the rest of the notebook?
10: I threw it away. I didn't need it. Now scram already. Now what
2: good is this? You've already read it on the air.
10: I didn't even get through the second stanza. And besides, it's just radio, right? No one will remember. Now go do your scribblings, while I attend to- <clears throat> And the teams are ready to kick it off. Leighton sets up back for the visitors, and it's off.
2: For the time being, I decided that Freddie and by extension myself, was right. Even if the broadcast drew significant numbers in the New York area, few would recall the few lines of verse, and fewer still from Pittsburgh. I settled into the game mindset. Quarter one was something of human table tennis. Leyden and Wood exchanging punts throughout. The Horsemen repeatedly successful with gains on the ground and even a forward pass, but the steadfast Cadets stifling ball carriers before yardage could be accumulated.
10: The Cadets, along with the 50,000 plus here, have expected the usual fast-paced aerial game from this Notre Dame offense. But instead, clever option plays and cross-blocking schemes are breaking this West Point front. And here's Miller with the handoff. He takes around the left flank. He's free, gains more, and it's stopped after a gain of 15 yards and another Notre Dame first down. The tactics of the Wiley-Rockney were starting to take form, after
2: seemingly lulling the Army defense into near complacency until his own cavalry arrived in the form of well-rested Irish regulars.
10: Here's Stuldreyer taking the snap. It's directly into the line. No! He stops, pivots, and fires! It's stabbed by Jim Crowley for the catch, and Crowley gets a few more for a total gain of 12 yards, and Notre Dame is threatening deep in Army territory for the first time today!
6: How do you like the brass tacks on Rocky? Uses a lot of second stringers to be punching back for a quarter, then brings in the war horses. And he's in for the touchdown! Nothing
10: was stopping Leighton from plowing through the line on that play. 6-0 Notre Dame fighting Irish with the lead.
2: From a reporting standpoint, the action was all in strategy. West Point's Ellinger, Garvish, Farwick, and their line mates indeed held steady and even drove forth their running game, but to little avail. This battle of immovable object versus immovable object was underpinned with the chess match contested between Newt Bockney and Jim McEwen, the junior in experience, but today proving equal in tactics.
3: Say, by the way, doctor, is music your sole pleasure? I mean the kind of music men hum or whistle when they feel on top of the world. And gentlemen, one of the many things that give you that tip-top feeling is the pleasure of being well-dressed. Perfect taste is a criterion. And in hats, there's nothing smarter than an Adam. Adam, Adam, Adam. From stem to stern, your Adam, Adam hat, Adam, hat Adam. gives off that look of quality. You see quality in the carefully molded shape, and in the richness of the genuine all fur felt, and in the subtle color shade. Next time you pass an Adam, 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 hat Adam or
11: hand. authorized dealer, Drop in and try on an Adam. 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 Once you
3: see and wear an Adam hat, Adam. 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 you agree that today, as before, Adam, Adam. Adam.
11: is Adam.
9: one of the <laughs> Just got done talking to a United Press colleague in Illinois. He says Red Grange went for four touchdowns and 225 yards in the first quarter today. What kind of defense were the Wolverines playing?
6: Dukes! Where's your buddy (laughs)
11: Fakes? With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Cawkeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar Racing History, he will share those same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. The names will sound familiar from Mario and Michael Andretti to Graham, Rahal, and actor Paul Newman. In each episode, Tim will pay homage to the great sport of IndyCar competition, And share what he has learned and treasured from his lengthy career. Expect the unexpected as he tells his favorite stories about great drivers, fierce racing feuds, unusual problems in the pits, and the tears of joy in winning seven championships. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen.
2: Notre Dame could boast no one colossal superstar like Red Grange, but their legion of four would ultimately pack more than sufficient punch on this day.
10: There's the big gain, around right the right end by Crowley, then Miller around to the left, and the West Point cadets are looking positively suspect on this drive, reeling from this grueling, difficult, four-headed monster of Notre Dame. And this time it's Crowley. Crowley takes the ball, breaks a tackle, and another! Crowley in the clear, and he'll go the full 20 yards for the score! Touchdown, Notre Dame! And that silences a majority of this Polo Grounds crowd. Even
2: with Harding's fourth-quarter touchdown for Army to stymie the shutout, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish buttress convincingly their early calls for recognition as a tip-top flight program with a dominant performance. Regardless of this team's final fate in their crusade for a number-one nod, we may be witnessing the first-ever All-American backfield in action. Teams remaining on the schedule would be well advised to prepare as thoroughly as possible. Though exactly how one prepares for an Armageddon on the gridiron may be beyond the scope of this writer's imagination. Miller, Stooldrayer, Crowley, and Layden. Pride of the Irish, scourge of a nation. Hello, Miss Delph. Has today's arrived yet?
3: Only about eight hours ago. They're right here. You know... Someone with an Ivy League education should really take it upon him or herself to learn the definitions of simple words like morning... Marla, what did you do? I was just making a joke. To my piece on the Notre
2: Dame game. Where's my piece?
3: It's right there. Front page of the sports section.
6: But half
2: of it is missing.
3: Oh, yes. We had to cut the four horsemen parts. Too derivative. What do you mean? I wrote that. Well, I believe you. But if we publish it, they're just going to say you plagiarized. What?
2: Plagiarized?
3: From who? Grantland Rice.
2: What? Grantland Rice? I don't even know Grantland Rice. I mean, I know Grantland Rice, but I don't know him. I never met him. How could I steal from him?
3: Orville, what you do on Sunday is your own business. But you'd think that somewhere between New York and here, you'd have read a newspaper. Here, try this one. The, uh, Philly Inquirer. Outlined against
2: a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again.
3: You see it? Every newspaper in America ran this piece, it seems like.
2: Dude's told me he was at the Illinois-Michigan game. Damn it! Is Frank in his office?
3: Of course, but I don't see why. Frank, you'd a moment want to. of your
5: time, please. Sure, Orville. Come in. Pull up a chair. Hey, I enjoyed your piece on the Illinois game. Great stuff. Great stuff.
2: Actually, it was on the Army Notre Dame game. Remember? I was in New York. Ah,
5: that's right. Great stuff. Too bad about the poem. I liked it. Some class on the sports page. Really great.
2: Thank you, Frank. Now I'd like you to do me a favor and sue.
5: Sorry? Do you a favor and sue? Sue who?
2: You can start with Freddie Carson, also this ultimate radio productions network he works for. Probably also Grantland Rice and whoever else is in on it too.
5: Pardon me Orville, but I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. Back up and start at the beginning.
2: So I started at the beginning, went through everything about riding the Four Horsemen, losing it, hearing Freddie on the radio, hearing about Rice's article, you know, you've heard it all once already.
5: So you want me to sue for financial damages under what charge? Theft! Plagiarism! I thought this... Frankie... Freddy. Freddy. I thought Freddy gave the poem back.
2: Yeah. Two pages.
5: What about the rest of the notebook?
2: He threw it away. There might have been something important in there. Was there anything important in the notebook? Not as such, but that's not the important thing.
5: Are you sure you didn't just drop it? You said you slept on the train. How do you know you didn't just fall out of your pocket? Freddy said he got
2: it from somebody. Why would somebody who just found a thing want to sell it? And how would he know who to sell it to?
5: A million reasons!
2: Any eyewitnesses? No. Freddy stole my idea. And Grantland Rice, too. What idea? The Four Horsemen. The whole metaphor of the Notre Dame backs as the riders of Armageddon in the Book of Revelation. All of it!
5: Well, I'm pretty sure the Book of Revelation is copyrighted by the man upstairs, and I'd hate to have to face his lawyers.
2: You're not taking me seriously, Frank.
5: Just listen to what you're saying. Grantland Rice didn't steal your poem. Mr. Radio borrowed the text, read seven or eight lines, and didn't give you credit. That might be grounds for a case, but you have no copyright, and only eyewitnesses are unknown people in the greater New York area who are listening on the radio. What you do have is the argument that you own the phrase, the four horsemen. What is that? It's three words. One of them is an article, another is a number. So you want to claim a copyright on horsemen? Or is it the concept of horsemen you were against, legally? Oh, oh. Orville, I know it stinks like 12-day-old road-dead squirrel. Did not get that idea to print first. Most of my life has been about that pursuit. But if you're thinking for one second about whether you'll have another great idea, I'll stop spending money sending you on the road. Or I could put Johnson on the sports beat and move you to the ticker tapes and obits and... No need to go that far. All right, then. Chin up, chest out, face front, and nail that next story. I'm positive it will be just great. And Orville, keep tabs on that notebook.
2: Here's Notre Dame, team of the famous four horsemen, lining up for the field goal. And the kick? It's good! This is plagiarist and petty thief Freddie Carson telling you that if there were a phrase to describe this team that I could steal, well, I would. Oh, what's this? The Irish have been awarded another field goal attempt. Why, they must have cheated. This certainly is a team after Freddie Carson's own heart. Lining up for the kick and...
0: You know, the typewriter will never actually eat the sugar, even if you force-feed it. That was a joke, you know. People here are making jokes always, and so I was telling a joke also and they say Germans have no sense of humor. Yes, this is absolutely untrue. Herm,
2: please tell me you're not going to start with the complaining about Coolidge again?
0: No, no, no. Past is past, and I have forgotten the illogic of passing up the skills of a senior writer devoted to the intricacies of politics, local. National and international in favor of the youngest staff writer who normally occupies time describing the flight path of balls to and fro. Like I say, I have forgotten. Past is past. I see. But there is something I have not forgotten. Do you know this expression? The city that never sleeps. Of course. I was just in New York. that is mine. I made it up.
2: Wait, the city that never sleeps is yours?
0: It is. In 1912, I made the mistake of going on a honeymoon to Niagara Falls with my wife. It would have been more of a mistake if you went without her. (laughs) Yes, very amusing. So, on the honeymoon, we had a very nice time. Alcohol was still legal, so we had a very, very nice time met lots of interesting people. One night, a lot of us were chinning, as you say these days, and they asked me about my work. I told them that I was writing a series on life in New York City, and I would call it The City That Never Sleeps. By the time that I returned to the office I see it is already in a story in a newspaper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and that it has been put on the wire services. I was very angry about this, especially with no byline on this piece. I could not even know if it was somebody I had spoken to or not. In fact, I went over this with my wife after, and we both remembered that no one else there was a newsman. And so I decided that... This was just an idea that must come at this time. If I had not thought of the idea, somebody else would have. And probably somebody else did already in this case.
2: I hate to admit it, but you're probably right.
0: Of course I am. After
3: all, I am always
2: right. And that was also a joke? Maybe.
3: Down by one with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. It seemed that my beloved pirates were destined to end this homestand on a losing note. But our gallant hero had other outcomes in mind. A pitch in the dirt, then one to back him off the plate, and a third high and outside. Not any of them his style, as with Casey of Lore, but our mighty man was ahead in the count. Not likely he'd leave no joy in this mudville. Now I recall the sun setting behind him in the box, as though the sky itself looked to blanket him in the bloody reds of oncoming night. Facts would not seem to bear this out unless this had been an unusually long game. Or the second of a doubleheader. But what is mundane reality against the memory of an adoring child? Pitch number four was what he was waiting for. He pounced, and with a swish of the ash, the ball sailed from the infield, the familiar point fading to beige, sailing beyond the sea of green and over the mighty scoreboard wall. Imagine that child swept up in the Pittsburghers, the Germans and Dutch especially. But everyone is one, chanting, repeating our hero's name. Oh, hello again. I hope you're not getting the wrong impression. I really don't spend every waking moment here in the office. In fact, I'm here precisely because I'm going out tonight. At father's behest, no less. You don't think I'd just wear this around the office, do you? Ooh la la, Mr. Mulligan. It's been quite some time since I saw you wearing the nice suit.
2: Well, I only wear it for special occasions. And when I don't know what the occasion is. What is this dinner about, Marla?
3: I know almost as little as you do. All I know is that we're going to visit Gretchen. She's an old family friend. Runs the pastry shop?
2: Sure. I know, Gretchen. But why tonight?
3: No idea. I do know Father's been passing up her dinner invitations for years. But why tonight? Who knows? Bonsoir. Sorry I'm late. And I really mean that this time. Have I missed the little scamp?
8: Thanks for the help, Myrtle. That's what socialite reporter friends are for. And may I say, merveilleux, Monsieur Mulligan. Très elegant.
2: Merci beaucoup, Madame Rousseau. May I say in return that your outfit is just berries.
8: Oh, this old thing! It's why I was late. I've gone to this show twice already this week, and I won't be seen wearing anything
3: remotely similar. Can you see about getting us a clothing allowance, Marla? I'll put it on the list right after a new company car and paid vacations to Havana.
5: Good evening, all.
3: Good evening. So, what do you think? Wow, boss sports bald.
8: I mean, bold new look.
2: As smooth as the backside of dolly birds in Boston.
5: Pardon me. Just an expression.
3: See, boss? I told you they'd like it. This is quite a change, father.
5: Well, I figure when you stop changing, you stop living. Besides, when termites have infested the house, maybe time to just leave the house.
6: Before the fat lady starts singing about lumberjacks. Right, Mr. Delft?
8: Lumberjacks? Is that him? Who else? Marla, my dear,
7: led us away to the... Uh... Good evening, everybody. Um, Marla, are are you ready? The driver's here, I've got
3: reservations. I'm sorry, Jack, but I'm otherwise engaged this evening. Father has invited Orville and I to dinner with some family friends. There is some good news, though. Good news? Yes, Myrtle is free this evening. Myrtle? Fret not, mon petit shoe. I spoke with your father. My
8: father? Yes, your father. Splendid man, though he could afford to unwind a bit more often for another time. Anyway, I explained to him that you'd been really looking forward to seeing Annie dear, on its last showing in Pittsburgh, but that his prospective female accompaniment for the evening had become indisposed. Naturally, Father Dearest wouldn't want his son deprived of culture, entertainment, and vital socializing. Finally, he may have suggested that I accompany you to the theater this evening. C'est incroyable, non?
3: Aye. Have a good time. Maybe we'll try again sometime, Jack. When you're willing to wait for my answer, perhaps?
8: Now, Jack, let's talk. I'm assuming your driver is working for the entire evening... First, we'll go to dinner, of course. I do hope you've chosen somewhere suitable. The key to dining before a theater performance is timely and precise presentation of each course.
2: A primary attraction of spectator sports, it is said, is the possibility of witnessing an event never seen before. Even without stooping to pedantry, one could extend this supposition to life itself, with the fundamental difference being that once-in-a-lifetime occurrences in the sporting realm are planned. Red Grange scoring four touchdowns in one quarter may represent a singularly unique event. A miracle, if you like. But in sports, we're at least assured that miracles may only take place inside the ordered confines. We were about to witness such an event.
4: Frank! Oh, Frank! I am so happy that you are here! And oh, now you really are the most bald Dutchman I know. (laughs) Marla! Hello, dearie! And Mr. Mulligan, good evening. Uh,
2: Orville is fine, ma'am.
4: You need to eat, definitely. You must weigh maybe 40 kilos. But come in now. Come into the house. Frank, come with me to get some surprise.
5: Hands here
3: already? Great.
5: I want to talk to him about some investments.
4: You too, and you're investing.
3: Orville, this is getting stranger and stranger. What was all that about, to stop changing is to stop living? He's cutting off all his hair, letting Jay lock up, going out on Saturday night. I do not understand any of this.
2: Marla, I'm sure nothing's wrong. And these are friends of your family. What's so strange about... Long before I saw the distinctive beak of a nose or the oversized hands, I knew who our mysterious fellow dinner guest was, and all about the surprise. That's... The
5: bow legs were a dead giveaway. That's... Marla Delft, Orville Morgan. I'd like you to meet Gretchen's cousin, Hans, better known as... Hannes Wagner.
9: Well, how do you do? It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Well, likewise, Mr. Mulligan. Frank here says you might like me to sit for an interview later. Would I? Well, we can discuss it later on. Deal. Well, good evening, Marla. Good to meet Ba-ba. you. Your father tells me that you're just about my biggest fan in all Pittsburgh. Ba ba. Marla?
2: Marla, are you all right? Marla. Uh. Talk about a miracle. I may not have seen Red Grange's romp, but this was something about as unbelievable. Marla Delft had been rendered speechless. I'm Orva Mulligan, sports writer.
3: Baba. Marla.
6: Marla.
2: Marla. Uh.
1: This has been Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episodes script and story by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. This episode co-stars in order of appearance. Holly Adams, Lennon DeLeon, Steve Silva, Gwyneth Dolan, John Roberts, Vernon Poitras, Vincent Anastasio, and Cadman Holland. Direction by Eric Bodwell, with honor recording by Don MacGyver. The theme song of Orville Mulligan's sports writer, is the Dayton Triangles Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional original music provided by Mike and Gene Monroe and David Lizzo of Dynamo Stairs. Please see this episode's liner notes for the full soundtrack listing. Orville Mulligan's sports writer, is produced by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Series concept by Darren Hayes. Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer, coming soon.
10: So what's the matter with you? Picking too many losers at the track lately? Rum running not going so well? You know, never mind. I don't have time for the sob story. I guess I can use this here to fill a few minutes. The Four Horsemen. I like it. Okay, I'll give you a buck for it. Two bucks. A dollar
1: fifty. Done. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode.
2: That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House, to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got in all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volpone, who teamed up to write this book.
1: The book is on sale right now, wherever books are sold, Uh, you know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So (laughs) go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports.
12: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.